Friends, if you would turn in your uh, pew Bibles, if you don't have your own copy of Scripture, to Jeremiah chapter 51. This is the second to last sermon that we'll have in Jeremiah. Um, and so that's on page 679 in your pew Bibles. Jeremiah 51. And last week we looked at and we heard the admonition to not go back to Egypt. That God had redeemed His people and they were enticed to go back to the land of slavery. And we saw in the very next chapter that they indeed went back to Egypt. They went back to a place of slavery. And how often do we, in our own sin, we say, God has saved me from my sin. And yet we want to run after the very things that, that we know will kill us. And we need to be reminded yet again that God would say, don't go back to Egypt. Remain where you are. Find that all the temptations that you have in life are really a running after security and comfort that can only be found in God. And so, I want you to be reminded that that sin that you're struggling with is not who you are. A lot of times we can think that, man, I'm just going to always struggle with this. I'm going to always be a angry person, or I'm always going to be addicted to that, or I'm always going to look at that, or I'm always going, I'm never going to be free. And so this morning, I think God would say to each one of us that he has set you free, even though in your heart of hearts, you still want to go back to Egypt. And, and sin is not the end of the story. In fact, sin is not who you ought to identify yourself with. Sin is something that happened as a result of the fall. There's a saying that goes, to err is human. Well, that's not true, actually. To err is not inherent to what it means to be a human being. Sin, to erring, erring, right? Erring is something that has happened as a result of the fall. It's not something that God had designed from the very beginning. He made us in His own image, and yes, that image has been fractured, that image has been marred, and yet it's still there. And God is in the process of doing surgery on us to make us look more like Him. And so, are we finite? Yes. Are we evil? No. And so I think I want to delve down a little deeper into that. Because I think a lot of times we can say, we are so evil. Well, no, 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 no. We commit sin and we commit evil acts, but we if made in the image of God, are not meant to remain there, are not meant to identify ourselves with that sin. So our message today is about Babylon. right? Babylon. And I think that God would hear you say that that sin that you run after, that Egypt that you run after, is really another form of slavery that we see in Babylon. So Babylon is this representative of Satan and sin. And I think we're going to see that in our in our passage today. So Jeremiah 51, and we're just going to be reading the first 11 verses. This says the Lord, behold, I will stir up the spirit of a destroyer against Babylon, against the inhabitants of Lokamai, and I will send to Babylon winners and they shall winnow her, and they shall empty her land when they come against her from every side on the day of trouble. Let not the archer bend his bow, and let him not stand up in his armor. Spare not her young men. Devote to destruction all her army. 
They shall fall down slain in the land of the Chaldeans and wounded in her streets. For Israel and Judah have not been forsaken by their God, the Lord of hosts. But the land of the Chaldeans is full of guilt against the Holy One of Israel. Flee from the midst of Babylon. Let everyone save his life. Be not cut off in her punishment. For this is the time of the Lord's vengeance, the repayment he is rendering her. Babylon was a golden cup in the Lord's hand, making all the earth drunken. The nations drank of her wine, therefore the nations went mad. Suddenly, Babylon has fallen and been broken. Wail for her. Take balm for her pain. Perhaps she may be healed. We would have healed Babylon, but she was not healed. Forsake her. And let us go each to his own country, for her judgment has reached up to heaven and has been lifted up even to the skies. The Lord has brought about our vindication. Come, let us declare in Zion the work of the Lord our God. Sharpen the arrows. Take up the shields. The Lord has stirred up the spirit of the kings of the Medes. Because his purpose concerning Babylon is to destroy it. For that is the vengeance of the Lord. The vengeance for his temple. And so just to bring us up to speed, remember Assyria came and destroyed all of the northern tribes of Israel and they were taken. And that whole area of the northern tribes of Israel was just decimated. And so 150 years later, a more powerful kingdom named Babylon came and started taking people out of Judah, these southern tribes of Judah. And they started, they took them, they shoveled them off to Babylon, that great and awful city, and they left a few remnant there, um, in which Jeremiah was one of those. And he continued to prophesy, repent, but remain. Repent of your sin, but remain in the land, because God will vindicate himself. Babylon is not the end. And so we see even here that there are two cities. There are two cities that have always been in conflict with each other. Two kingdoms, as it were. And you see this in the Garden of Eden, don't you? Where the serpent surreptitiously snuck into the garden. And he said, don't trust your king. Trust me. Put your faith in me. And so even from there in the Garden of Eden, God and Satan were at enmity with each other. And then as the city of Rome was being destroyed, St. Augustine wrote one of his great works called The City of God. And he said that there are two great cities. There's the city of man. It's earthly. It's temporal. It's a counterfeit to the city of God. And that's what we see throughout Scripture. And so city of God is a really thick book. And it traces from Genesis all the way to Revelation, these two cities. And if you have time, I would encourage you to read it. And so what did St. Augustine say? He said the earthly city glories in itself. The heavenly city glories in the Lord. Just kind of tease this out a little bit more in the book of Hebrews. What is what does the author of Hebrews say? He says that we are looking forward to a city whose maker, whose architect is God himself. And it cannot be shaken because other cities can be shaken. In fact, they were always meant to be shaken. The city of man is shakable, but the city of God is unshakable. And it's eternal. You see, the earthly city is always a copy and a counterfeit of God's good purposes. Joy, 
that can be had in God and God alone is, is counterfeited with entertainment. Hope is counterfeited with wishing that something will happen. And pleasure is replaced with piccadillies. And God says, don't stay in Babylon because I will redeem you and I will save you. And so Augustine says this. He says, the bodies of irrational animals. He's talking about just plain animals like dogs and cats and such. The bodies of irrational animals are bent toward the ground. Whereas man was made to walk upright with his eyes on heaven as though to remind him to keep his thoughts on things above. The thing that differentiates you and me from the animals that God created is that we have a mind and we have reason. And we weren't meant to walk around on all fours and look down at the ground, but we were always meant to look up and contemplate the things of God. And so I don't think it's an accident that when Nebuchadnezzar said, look at this great city of Babylon that I have made. And you can read about this in Daniel. He says, look at this great city of Babylon that I have made. I have done it all by myself. What does God do to judge him? He gives gives him a disease called boanthropy, which is basically to act like an animal. So he goes around on all fours and he looks down at the ground and he says, if you're going to think that you did it all, this is what you can do. You can stare at the ground like an irrational animal instead of giving me glory. See, our chapter, chapter 51 finishes a whole section that begins all the way back in chapter 46. And I won't have you turn there, but um, chapter 46 begins this litany of indictments against all of the nations. It says, how dare you think that you are greater than the one who created you? And so Jeremiah announces all these curses on the nations of the earth. One by one, he indicts them for not living as they ought to live. He levels charge after charge against the nations who sought to magnify their own kingdom over the kingdom of God. And that's what kings do. If you look throughout human history, isn't that what kings do? And they try to amass more land for themselves. And even Alexander the Great, who called himself and he was called at that time king of kings and lord of lords, he died at 32 years old, a lonely and depressed little man. Because kings were never meant to own the entire earth because the earth is not theirs. It is on loan to them. And you can read in verse 15 of our own chapter here later on. It says, it is he, God, who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom and by his understanding stretched out the heavens. The earth belongs to the Lord. And so all of these little kings, even though they call themselves kings of kings, are nothing. They're animals. All the kings of the earth need to be reminded is Daniel chapter 2, verse 21. And in fact, I would would encourage you to read Daniel, the whole book. The whole book is written by Daniel, who's in Babylon. And it's a great coupling to go along with uh, Jeremiah, the end here, as well as Lamentations. But in Jeremiah chapter 2, he says, God changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. See, all the land that Nebuchadnezzar had conquered was because God let him. He was humbled. He was humbled by God. And he eventually said, after he he then was relieved of that illness and he could stand upright, do you know what Nebuchadnezzar, the pagan king of Babylon, said about the Lord of Israel? He said, blessed 
He says, he says that he blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? But at root, God's issue isn't with Nebuchadnezzar. God's issue isn't with the kings of the earth. See, the kings of the earth are merely pawns. They are merely doing the bidding of their own king. Have you ever considered that? You considered that Egypt had Pharaoh, who was the son of Ra. He was, he was doing the bidding of the sun god. The Philistines, they were ruled by Dagon. And you can read all about that. In, uh, in Judges as well, what happened to Dagon. And then you can read about Babylon had the god Bel. And so all of these kings were merely acting out what they thought their king wanted them, to, what their king, who was a god, wanted them to do. And see, Babylon believed that Bel was greater than Yahweh, the god of the Israelites. And so that's why they took all of their stuff out of the temple and they put it in their temple in Babylon, they said, hey, if you want to see who the best and most awesome God is, it's our God. Look at all this stuff that we've we've defeated every other king of the earth. And we've defeated every other God because Bel is the most mighty of all gods. And so that, that's that's what is at root here in this in this context in Jeremiah 51, that it's not just about, you know, and, and a lot of times what we can do. In our own culture is we can say, man, isn't it horrible what's going on in the news? Isn't it horrible that 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 country is trying to take over that country? I can promise you at root underneath all of that. And this is this is for another time is there is a greed and a lust for power that is motivated by the God of this earth. It's not merely a battle of sociopolitical entities. What we are witnessing in our earth, because we don't want to talk about it a lot, are spiritual principalities at war. And God will have none of that because what does he do? Right? What does he do? Does he let that happen? Yeah, he does, actually. God lets Babylon come into his temple and take his stuff away. And the, and the temptation that Babylon had was to say, huh, God must not like you. Or your God is very weak. God's forsaken you because he is weak and impotent. He can't do anything to save you. Look at everything that we've done and look at what you are. Why don't you go wash, wash my laundry? Why don't you go shine my shoes, Israel? That's what Babylon thought. Right? They said, we beat you. Therefore, your God's not great. Your God's powerless. Your God has left you. So the temptation that Babylon and Israel both fell into was to forget that there was a deeper purpose. They forgot that there was a deeper purpose in their suffering and in their pain to be thrown out of the land like God had already promised that he would. We have a short memory, don't we? He said that if you don't follow me, you will be thrown out of this land to give it rest. See, in other words, Babylon did not win because they were stronger or they had a more powerful army. They didn't win because Bel was more powerful than Yahweh. Sure, it would appear that way if you measured according to what you could see. But you see in verse 5, what do you see in verse 5, the first part? For Israel and Judah have not been forsaken. 
by their God, the Lord of hosts, or a.k.a. the Lord of armies. They have not been forsaken because God, my friend, never forsakes his people. You may feel forsaken. You may feel alone. But God never forsakes his people, even when you are in the city of Babylon, even when you're in exile. He never forsakes you. He never leaves you. See, Babylon was only allowed to take as much as the Lord would give it. And Israel needed to be reminded that judgment came because he loves his people. Not because he had forsaken his people. The very judgment that God brought on Israel was because he loved them. Not because he had forsaken them. And and so this whole litany here from chapter 46 to 51 is because God stands over all nations as their creator. He's not just the God of the Hebrews. He's not just some tribal deity. But he is the God who stands over all nations and has every right to say, how dare you? How dare you, Babylon? How dare you, Philistia? How dare you, Egypt? I will flex my right arm and I'll show you who is the king of all the earth. And I'll show you whose earth this belongs to. It belongs to me, the Holy One of Israel. Because look at verse 5, again, the second half. The land of the Chaldeans, Chaldea is another way to say Babylon. The land of the Chaldeans is full of guilt against who? The Holy One of Israel. So my friends, God, this whole chapter is to remind you and me that God does not wink at sin. God doesn't just say, I'm not going to deal with that. He doesn't just look past it. Because in verse 24 of our chapter, I will repay Babylon and the inhabitants of Chaldea before your very eyes for all the evil that they have done in Zion, declares the Lord. So the Lord says, I will recompense them for their evil deeds. Sure, I use them. They were a golden cup in my hand to accomplish my purposes, but they're still guilty of sin against me. And they will be punished as a result of that. So while it's true that God used Babylon to punish Israel for Israel's breaking and Israel's disobedience to his covenant, it's also true that Babylon's responsible and guilty before God, and God will not let that fly. And see, it's not just sin, generally speaking, is it either? They sin against the Holy One of Israel. That sin always has a reference against God. It's not just, man, I, I sinned. No, you, you, broke, you broke God's law. You sinned against Him. You sinned against your neighbor, against the Holy One of Israel. And see, God stands over all creation as its maker and as its rightful king. And so there aren't these separate geopolitical entities, but over all of those, God encompasses all of those. He created all of humankind and so he sends the Medes or the Persians, they're the same, same peoples, and, and you can see that in verse 1 and verse 11, that he stirs up the spirit of the destroyer. He stirs it up, and he says, the Lord has stirred up the spirit of the kings of the Medes. He's stirred them up, and he said, it's coming. Judgment is coming, just wait for it. It may not come when you want it, it may not even come in your generation. The land has to rest for 70 years. The land of Israel, the promised land. And so so God says, it'll happen. You may not see it, but it will happen. Vindication will come against those who have sinned against me. And so I think it bears noting that 
just as Egypt represented a, a greater reality of sin that we have a tendency to run back to, Babylon also represents the sin that comes and, and, and tries to devour us. See, the God of this earth, as Paul says, the God of this earth has blinded the minds of unbelievers. So yes, we have a proclivity towards sin. We, we love sin. But if we're honest with ourselves, a lot of times sin seems to be just crouching at our door, ready to devour us a lot of times. And so this is what Babylon represents. Babylon represents this sinful tendency that wants to overtake us. Will God deal with that as well? That's the question. And that's the question. So God says to Babylon, oh, you you thought you had defeated me and my people. You thought you had overtaken my people and you have enslaved them again. But see, that was all part of my military campaign. You see, God is not in the in the business of trench warfare. He has actually parachuted behind enemy lines. And he said, this was all part of the plan, Babylon. I was always planning to come and destroy the destroyer, the one who would oppress my people. That was always my plan. Surprise. You set a trap and you have now found your foot in the trap and you will pay for your sin. And so I want us to remember, as I mentioned mentioned a moment ago, that, that the battles God's people face are not simply against flesh and blood. And so whatever you are thinking your battle is against, circumstances, yourself, it's not flesh and blood. It's against principalities. It's against... All of these things that would seek to destroy you. So don't think, oh man, I just keep giving in to that. Man, I'm never going to... Shucks. No. <laughs> no. There is, there is a spiritual war being engaged against you. To have you. To hold you. To keep you. And all the while petting you, letting you think that, oh, it's all going to be okay. That's what Babylon does. Babylon entices you to come away from the Lord. And it tries to say, hmm, I think I can give you more than what God would give you. Why don't you come here? And, and in that very moment of enticing, what has Babylon done? What has sin done? It's devoured you. And it's had you. So Babylon is defeated. Babylon's defeated, Right? That's what, that's what happens in chapter 51. Um, the Medes come in and they destroy all of Babylon. So it's done, right? Story's over. It's done. It's taken care of. Well, no, God's people continued to sin. Just like us. The sin was dealt with, right? The Persians came in and they defeated. But we read in the book of Revelation that Babylon hadn't totally died yet, right? John speaks about Babylon again. He says the great enemy of God's people in Revelation 18. He says, fallen. Fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit. Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. Alas, alas, for the great city that was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels and with pearls for in a single hour. All this wealth has been laid waste. And so if Babylon was destroyed here by the Persians, why is John mentioning it again in Revelation? Because again, Babylon is not just about Babylon. 
Babylon is about sin and Satan, the God of this world who is at pain to destroy you and to enslave you. And so my question is, what was the single hour that John talks about that, that Babylon was destroyed? It was on a single Friday. It was on a Friday when Zechariah had prophesied of. And he said, Rejoice, O daughter of Zion! Behold, your king comes riding on a donkey with his recompense with him. The humble king of all the earth has come into the heart of the beast and has destroyed Babylon once and forever by a bloody cross, by driving a cross into the heart of the beast, by himself dying for his people. Because at root, we love the darkness. We love Babylon. We love our captors. And so Christ is the one who is the victor of this reality. But Babylon still writhes in agony. It's like a seven-headed serpent that is still trying to grab people and pull it into its kingdom. And God has reminded us that in one single hour, Babylon was destroyed and it's still on its way out. It's been killed. The blood of Babylon's been spilled. So what are we supposed to be doing while we're waiting for it to just finally lay over and die in its last breath? We're to do the bidding of our God and our King. Right. That's what we are called to do. So if if all that we are doing is doing what God has called us to do, what is that? What has he called you to do specifically? He's called you to repent and to throw yourself on his mercy. So I think a lot of times we get bogged down with. I mentioned it before busyness. I've mentioned it before preoccupations about what that person thinks about me. And so that fear that you feel, that anxiety, that that loneliness, that discouragement, that boredom with the everyday stuff of life, my friends, see them for what they are. Those things are meant to keep you impotent, are meant to keep you from actually being and doing what God has called you to do. So we can pretend all day long, I'm just so busy, I can't really talk to people about Jesus. No, what's happening is, is that Satan is distracting you. Satan is keeping you from being all that God. And then you say in your heart of hearts, well, I'm nobody. Who am I to tell somebody? Who am I to go and do what God has called me to do? But I'm here to remind you, if you are in Christ, you have been set free. You've been set free from sin and that that freedom can be had right now. But we we so often get bogged down with with stuff that, that doesn't really matter, does it? God's saying, be free. Come out of her. No longer be a slave to Babylon. She's been defeated, and so why will you run back? You aren't meant to be a slave to the the animal like Nebuchadnezzar anymore. You're a slave to a merciful and gracious and patient and covenant-keeping God who will never forsake you. And if that doesn't breathe life into you, To take risks and to say, you know what? Man may kill me, but he will never destroy me. Because I belong to the creator of the earth and he will bring me home. He will never forsake me. He will never leave me. And so I don't have to be afraid. So my friends, what do we do? We go ourselves into the heart of Babylon. Into a place where we have been exiled. And we say, what can you do to me? 
You may kill me. You may laugh at you, me. You may treat me smugly. But I've got God on my side. I've got God on my side. Look at verse 10. The Lord has brought about our vindication. Come, let us do what? Declare in Zion. And what are we going to declare? The work of the Lord our God. See, you and I are called to go into the highways and byways and declare the work of God in our lives. You don't have to have all the answers to every single question that anybody's going to ask. But you can say, I know that I was blind, but now I see. I know that that I was a slave in Egypt. I know that I was in captivity in Babylon. But this great king came on a donkey and he freed me by his own blood, by driving into the heart of Satan to never take me as a slave again. And if that God who loves you so freely and so powerfully stands on your side, why can we ever be afraid? Why are we ever going to be anxious? Why are we going to let people scare us? Or make us feel like we're outcasts. When God says, fear not, I am with you. We can take that to the bank. And we say that this great city, the city of man, the earthly city is a cheap imitation. So whatever you're struggling with, see a little deeper. Don't just think that the sin is just sin by and of itself. On face value, yes. But underneath that, underneath that is a devotion. Underneath that is a deeper spiritual issue that God would have you be free from. And so God says, I freed you. Be free. And be bold. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we confess that many times we get encumbered by sin that easily entangles us. We oftentimes get blinded by schedules that are overflowing and to the brim and and we just don't seem to have time. And yet, Father, would you teach us that even in this city of man that we live in right now, that you are are there with us. You haven't forsaken us. And when we feel like sin is crouching at our door and ready to devour us, Would you help us to stand upright and to look to heaven and say, there is my righteousness. There is my king. I don't have to be afraid. I don't have to let this overtake me. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. And Father, we know that we serve the king of all the earth. Father, we pray that you would remind us that you would free us from fear. Free us from getting so wrapped up in our own wheels that we cannot see the beauty of every day being a gift from you and an opportunity to declare that our God reigns. God, would you help us? Would you open our eyes? Would you free our hearts to be brimming with love and joy so much so that it spills out into the lives of others? We pray this morning that you would You would help us. That you would open our eyes. Unstop our ears. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.